AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Well, welcome guys. You know, what I thought we would do today is talk a little bit about a bit of a contribution I made to a book on artificial intelligence for autonomous networks. It's um, edited by Mazin Gilbert here in AT&T Labs, and he uh, basically got together a, a large group of uh, individuals that contributed to the book. I happen to have uh, helped with the contribution in the security topic area and applying artificial intelligence, machine learning, and automation in general for security to autonomous networking. So I thought we would start out with a little bit of a discussion about what some of the motivations would be to use these types of tools in the security space. So I have a few talking points here. First one is talent, what I call talent amplification. Okay. That is, um, you know, we have a sort of a small pool of folks that really understand the nits and grits of different pieces of security technology, um, how attackers work, what it looks like to see an attack. And so what you'd like to be able to do is amplify that capability. And by doing that, that is basically have the people that understand these things be a little bit more of a teacher than a doer. Okay. And so, you know, you get good at things by doing things, but you'd like to teach them. And I think we'll be talking a little bit later about how you do the teaching of machines right. a little bit later on. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, second one is increasing scalability. That is, as I said, we have a relatively limited talent pool. And so if you want to really have the talent pool expand, what you want to be able to do is deal with, actually in two dimensions. One is to deal with more kinds of scenarios the second would be to deal with, you know, this is something we deal with a lot here at AT&T, is to be able to scale and deal with lots and lots of occurrences of the same kinds of scenarios. Got it. And so you'd like to be able to uh, increase scalability. Any thoughts on that so far? So I think it's, it's interesting that you talk about talent amplification, uh, where I get sometimes when people talk about using AI, they talk about, you know, not having to have so many people in your SOC, whereas mm -hmm. you're saying you still need people in the SOC, but this is a way to help those existing folks. Absolutely. And I feel much people, <laughs> most people would probably be more comfortable with that idea in the first place. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting because I feel like there are a lot of things that as a SOC analyst, if you had AI to help you do the, the tedious parts of it, or it's like, I know already I need to do the mm -hmm. five, these five following lookups and then do some sort of mm -hmm. analysis of that in order to proceed. I mean, you can automate the lookups. You can't automate that step where you look at it and go, oh, I've seen this before and therefore I can make these following decisions. It's interesting to see it applied in that way, I think, seeing how it directly applies to what I would do as opposed to some of the other ways that I've seen machine learning applied in antivirus or um, network detection or things like that. So the next one here would be overcoming complexity. That is, some security analysis gets pretty complex. Yeah. And, you know, the way I like to think of it is, um, you know, I think people, normal people can think pretty well in three dimensions. But think about how many attributes can feed into an analysis problem. Sure. You can have dozens of those. And to be able to kind of visualize that is really complex for a person to do. But machines can do it quite well. And so it's an opportunity to use the algorithms that is machine learning to be able to facilitate looking at more complex problems than a human could possibly do. 
And it, it's not, it, the other dimension of that, by the way, is you may have many attributes, but sometimes it takes many or several iterations of analysis to get to a meaningful conclusion. Yep, definitely. And so the combination of those two things is actually a dimension upon the many dimensions, right? Mm, <laughs> so so it's, a, it's dealing with that problem. Uh, next one would be expediency. That is, people can think so fast, but computers can think faster. Mm -hmm. And so we'd like to take advantage of that. And it, you know, a little bit that, that, that uh, relates to the, the uh, scaling thing. That is, it's a different parameter of scaling, but I think it's one to call out. That is, you want to be able to solve security problems really fast. Mm -hmm. And the last but not least here is accuracy. Um, and accuracy perhaps isn't the exact right term, but I thought it was the right term to show here. Okay. What I'm really talking about is consistency. It uh, is people, you know, they get groggy, they need coffee, they need sleep. And so they will tend to make mistakes, whereas at least computers will be consistent. They may be wrong, mm -hmm. but they're consistently wrong and it gives you an opportunity to improve it and fix it. So these are the opportunities for being able to build upon things that may be starting out as imperfect and improve those over time. So these are the motivations. I think they're really important to kind of keep in mind because they start to drive into how you choose the right kinds of problems to solve in security space. There are certain things where machine learning really applies and artificial intelligence really applies. So it makes sense to consider what kinds of factors would influence how you would choose problems to solve with artificial intelligence. So I wanted to comment on the accuracy statement. Like I totally agree with you, but but also, you know, your, your machine learning models are as good as your training data, right? And and, yeah. and you're gonna be using human labor laborers, like, you know, experts that will label that data. And those humans uh, are going to have biases, right? So you may you may end up with some models that are biased, and and basically those models are going to be consistently making the, the same bad predictions uh, because of that training data. That training data that Jaime talked about is critical because if you train it wrong, if you introduce, like Jaime said, uh, a bias, you can end up mistraining that model, misdetecting, uh, and and causing yourself more trouble than it's worth with false positives. So here are a couple of things, you know, and this actually was a piece of a presentation that I was going to do at a conference and uh, didn't get the opportunity to do it. But I think there's a little bit of hype around artificial intelligence and machine really? learning and security. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite pet peeves here is, uh, you know, or the claim is, you know, use artificial intelligence to detect and block threats real time. Now, my point of view <laughs> is if an exploit has occurred, it's already occurred. Right. You can't go and block it after it's occurred. So block anything going on, but like it <laughs> right. happened already. Yeah. And so if you know what you can block, quite frankly, you know, if you if you if you have an idea that, you know, I could block this IP address or this, you know, this span of IP addresses, or I can block this Porter protocol, or I could block this exploit, if you have the means to do that, you should already heck, be doing it. Do that way ahead of time. Yeah. You know, figure that out ahead of time. And I think that's where you, uh, you know, to apply the artificial intelligence that is to observe the behavior of systems, activities, applications, the network, and use that to help define what doesn't need to be passed through the network. Okay, so that's, uh, that's one of my favorite ones. Uh, second one is use artificial intelligence to predict threats. To predict I, threats. Yeah, and, and yeah, I, mean, I think this is exactly along the lines of what you're referring to earlier. That is, 
Computers can't create data that isn't there, and I don't know any computers that can read the minds of attackers yet. And really, ultimately, you know, attack comes from somebody thought up an attack, or a, or a target that they're going after, or a motivation. And so, you know, maybe you can think of a probability that an attack is going to occur, but you certainly can't predict that attacks going to occur. And you know, I don't know any computers that can predict the future yet either. So, you know, I totally agree with you. Like, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions in terms of uh, you know machines. Uh, being able to predict whether an attack is going to happen. That, that's very crazy. That being said, there are a couple of use cases that, that we have been uh, actively researching. One of them is, you know, are you able to predict based on, uh, you know, training data for uh, past vulnerabilities, whether a vulnerability, a particular CVE is, is going gonna, is gonna to be actively exploited. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, people have had some success uh, in the past. Obviously, it's not predicting that an attack is going to happen, but as you described, Brian, is predicting what's the probability of, of uh, uh, an exploit uh, in, in, in the wild, particularly ex exploiting that, that CVE. Yeah, so let me, I'll, I'll just expand on that a bit because I think you have a very good point here that is, uh, and I see kind of two parameters here. One is that based on the type of a vulnerability, you could make some predictions about what the likelihood is that somebody's going to use that vulnerability, that is go through the trouble to create an exploit against it and use it actively in the wild. That is, it's going to be based on things like what can you gain from it, how difficult is that exploit going to be, and how broadly can you use it, and does it target systems that potentially would give you some motivation? This can you make money from it, kind of thing is what it comes down to, or uh, or gain data, or you know, capture data or, or intelligence. So very good points there, and then I think the next piece of it too is I think you know we do reporting on internet weather on a regular basis, and that is. A, not really a prediction, but many times we see evidence of early activity that is the intent to exploit, that is part of that plan to exploit, oftentimes involves surveying the internet mm -hmm. to see if there are targets that can be exploited. And so that is a predictor of what may come later on. Hmm. It's interesting, do you, do you get to count it as, as predicting it if you've already got that initial data spike that shows someone is interested in the port? Because at that point you've already got you know, evidence. It's, it's this difference between, you know, sans any information saying, I predict this will occur, and then looking at the data and going, oh, actually I'm gonna predict this has occurred because I've already seen it happening. It's like, well, that's not really, I wouldn't count that as a prediction necessarily. Well, not, it is, not in the oracle sense of prediction. Yeah, not in the oracle sense of prediction, but it's a prediction in the sense that if it only hits one or two individuals, it hasn't hit you yet. Mm -hmm. And so from an from a individual's point of view, it is a prediction of the future in a sense. Okay. So the other example around prediction is if you are able to observe uh, a threat actor, an adversary setting up infrastructure, are you able to predict whether that infrastructure is going to be used uh, for malicious purposes in, in the future? And, you know, that's something that some people are having some success with as well. So think about you collect data from, you know, who is data, uh, new uh, services that are being set up on a daily basis, uh, what's running on, in those servers. And, and, and then you train a model to basically predict uh, whether that, that's being set up by, by a particular third actor. So that, that's exactly not predicting because 
you know, the infra- infrastructure is being set up at that particular point. But you are kind of predicting whether, uh, you know, those reactors are, are going to use uh, those, uh, you know, those servers or those, those uh, domain names for, for malicious purposes. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, um, you know, if, for folks that are interested in learning more about this kind of thing, this is just a small excerpt of the security section in this book. There are a number of other topics related to uh, artificial intelligence in autonomous networks that, uh, you know, may be of interest to folks. And uh, you can go online and get that book. You know, artificial intelligence can't predict the future, but it certainly can give you insights that perhaps you wouldn't be able to get with humans alone and uh, certainly be able to extend your talent to broader areas and scale and capability through use of artificial intelligence. All right, Yami, so based on this discussion that we already had, maybe you can take us into a little deeper on how you are working with, uh, you know, data science and machine learning in the area of threat detection and threat analysis. Absolutely. So one of the things that I want to start with is is clarifying a little bit uh, some misconceptions and whether, uh, you know, in the cybersecurity industry, you're seeing many players talking about using AI and machine learning. So... This is something that, you know, uh, those two words, you are going to see people uh, using them pretty much in the same context, but I I wanted to clarify a little bit what that means. For me, artificial intelligence is more the the broad field, and, you know, within artificial intelligence, we can talk about uh, general artificial intelligence and narrow artificial intelligence. So general artificial intelligence is something that doesn't exist yet, right? We haven't been able to create... Uh, uh, you know, an artificial intelligence that is able to generalize and reason uh, as well as, as or better uh, than humans. So when we talk about narrow AI, is is that's what machine learning is? Is uh, you know models that are able to solve a particular uh, really well-defined problem. Uh, right now, we have a very narrow definition of, of functional uh, artificial intelligence, and machine learning is one version of that, one technique that might be used to teach a machine how to solve a problem. You know, I think when it, just a quick comment here, I think what the next stage that we need to get to is using artificial intelligence to figure out how to apply artificial intelligence. I mean, quite frankly, it's that, that's where it, it has to be. And, and it's going to continue to be iterative like that, that to get deeper and deeper. So, I, I totally agree. I and mean, if, if you see some of the latest research from DeepMind, uh, uh, Google, and others, you know, the field of auto ML, uh, you know, it, it's really, you know, there's a lot of investments there. And, and, you know, for you, for those of you that don't know what auto ML is, uh, as Brian said, it's basically training a neural network to come up with new, uh, you know, neural, neural networks uh, that you can apply. That will be the path to singularity, in my opinion. So, you know, we, we, can, we can divide machine learning techniques uh, mainly in two categories. Uh, uh, and actually, we'll argue three, but let, let, let's keep it with, you know, supervised machine learning and unsupervised machine learning. And then that third one that we are not going to talk about today because it, I still haven't seen many use cases uh, within cybersecurity is uh, reinforcement learning. But, you know, let's focus on supervised and unsupervised methods. We talk about unsupervised machine learning in the area of anomaly detection or, uh, you know, data exploration. And, you know, a, a point that I wanted to make there is we have many, 
you know, cybersecurity products out there that are applying unsupervised learning, and that includes, you know, clustering, anomaly detection, etc. I'm not a huge fan of those uh, of, of those algorithms in in the cybersecurity context because you know they are prone to many false positives. Things that are just clustering and finding things that are similar won't necessarily find you something malicious. Uh, that's when you need to apply a model that has trained data where someone else has already gone through and done the work and then shows the model. This is what you're looking for. The most successful problems for machine learning models are going to be those where you have access to a very high quality data sets that have been trained and labeled and you know where you can apply a, a you know a supervised learning model that can you know make predictions about about that you know data set that you have trained on you know to me that raises an interesting question because i'm thinking about you guys have done the work on your side to train it for your particular data sets i mean the existence of a really good training data set kind of implies the existence of an expert in that data set already. Mm -hmm. So someone just had to take a look at it and categorize it and tag it up. Do you find that categorizing and tagging up a data set from say one organization gives you a good view into, if you were to use that exact same model in a different organization, like take two you know, Fortune 500 companies with very different networks and very different structures and activities, do you find that they actually do, the model from one applies well or, or is there extra training that has to occur before it becomes useful? So I will say it highly depends on, on the use case, right? And, and, you know, like when thinking about that problem, one of the approaches that some companies are, are taking is using their customers uh, to train uh, those data sets. So we were talking about how uh, not many people are really qualified to, to train these models, right? So like... Trust me, like many, many customers out there are going to be making bad decisions and, you know, in the end you're going to end up with a model that is trained uh, with data that is, is noisy or, or, you know, labels that are not correct. And in the end, that's, that's going to be even worse. So, yeah, I mean, you, you, really need, uh, you, you really need to make sure that the quality of your training data is extremely, extremely good. Otherwise, it's, it's going to be hard. Yeah, I think this kind of feeds into that concept of talent amplification that we talked about a little bit earlier. Okay. That is, how does the data get labeled? The talent that knows how to find the relevant things labels it. And I think there's the notion of active labeling. That is, you don't have to have a historical necessarily data set that is labeled. You can have your current data set being labeled by folks that are doing analysis and providing a feedback mechanism into the machine learning so that future events that look like that will be flagged as potential security events. Okay. And then it's an iterative process that is to have the talent continuing to feedback into the machine learning so it starts to learn what the talent recognizes as being relevant. There are tools that can be used to solve problems, but it requires technical skills to apply those tools and solve those problems today. It's not as if you can just stick somebody in front of it and, and uh, they figure out how to solve the problem. So I, w I wanted to share with you like uh, one particular example of, of how we are using machine learning today at AT&T Cybersecurity. So one, one of the you know, processes that we run is you know, we collect a, 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 a huge amount of malware samples per day. And basically, we have a system that automatically, you know, collect those samples, perform a static analysis that is, you know, what do we know about the file? Uh, what can we learn from the file without 
actively executing that file. And then we have a second system that is doing uh, what we call dynamic analysis, that is, you know, executing the sample, the malware sample in a sandbox, um, and then analyzing what happens when, when, when we, you execute that sample. So as you can imagine, that's a, a, a huge amount of, of data, right? We are talking about, uh, right now we are doing pretty much 200,000 samples per day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we are storing all that information. Uh, and, you know, thanks to that, we are applying uh, machine learning in, in a couple of places there. One of them is actually using unsupervised learning uh, to cluster uh, malware families. So to give you an example, if, if I had to give my team the analysis of 200,000 samples every single day and, and they had to go and manually verify whether, uh, you know, that's an, a new malware family, that will be, you know, I, I will really need like a thousand, uh, uh, you know, threat analysts. What happens is uh, we are actively using some unsupervised techniques to basically generate clusters out of that activity. So in the end, at the end of the day, what I give my team is a set of like, let's say 10 clusters of malware samples that exhibit a similar behavior, right? As Brian was describing, a human will have a really hard time doing this because it's high dimensional data. You're, you're talking about uh, you know, thousands of different features that you have to look at. And a machine is really good at, at making, you know, establishing those relationships. And this particular technique has, you know, it's saving us a, a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And, and from that, you would get consistency from the machines. That is, if you have an analyst doing it, they're going to probably weight things differently. And, you know, oh, this kind of looks like this, but maybe there are other attributes that are hidden that are really kind of like that. At least you'll get consistency in how they get clustered over time. Absolutely, and and that's uh, that's actually good, as, as you said. Like you you need some consistency there, especially when you are looking at, at you know writing signatures out of those those behaviors. Mm-hmm. So the the second example I wanted to share with you is is actually you know, using the same data set. A problem that we are looking at right now is since securing those malware samples in a sandbox is act, actually costly. Uh, in terms of resources and in terms of, uh, you know, time, because, you know, you may want to leave those samples executing there for a few minutes or, you know, sometimes even more than that. So you have to have uh, enough uh, computer resources to do so. So one of the things that we are looking at is, can we predict what the behavior of the malware sample is going to be when executed in, the, in that sandbox actually without executing it uh, so we can we can skip that step in, in in some of those malware samples. So as you can imagine, we can use that uh, data set that we have of all the static features that we extract mm-hmm. and previous dynamic analysis to see what happens when we execute the sample. So in the end, we can create a model that can say, based on previous observations, the the probability of this sample connecting to the internet is 90%, or based on uh, you know the static features the probability of this sample actually exploiting a particular vulnerability in, your, in, in, in the endpoint is going to be X. So that way, it's actually uh, letting us um, use those resources in a, in a smarter way because we can skip many of those analyses that are not going to be driving some of those malicious behaviors that we are, we are looking for. Mm-hmm. So that, in that case, you're predicting the behavior is something you have in hand. It's not as if you're trying to predict the future. 
right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, very good. And those actually, those are very good applications of machine learning technology. They really demonstrated a lot of the topics we discussed earlier in terms of talent amplification, mm -hmm. scalability, consistency or accuracy in the analysis. Very good. Cool. I feel like we're on the right track, and that's that's a comforting thought that um, we understand that there are limitations to what can be solved with it, um, but we're also applying it in interesting and, and unique ways that hopefully will pay off. Matt, so you're telling me that the OG Users Forum got hacked. Yes, sir. First, you're gonna to need to explain a little bit about what the OG Users Forum is and what took transpired here. Let's talk about, is this a good thing or a bad thing? So go right. ahead. So the story comes to us from Krebs on Security, and there's a site called OG Users, and ostensibly it's a site for trading high-value accounts on social media, you know, mm. Twitter, Instagram, things like that. Ostensibly, this is all being done above board, being sold. You know, mm -hmm. one user says, I don't need this handle anymore, and they sell it to somebody else. Now, so this was surprising to me. There's a pretty big market for like the three letter identifiers in Twitter, for example. Sure, right? yeah. In fact, back in the day when I started on the show, one of the first stories I remember covering was uh, Matt Honan, who had at MAT on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Somebody hacked him and, in the process of it, like wiped his entire iCloud account just to mm -hmm. get a hold of his, uh, his stuff. So he lost all his personal photos, all that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, this, this is apparently a thing. People really want to have these vanity handles on these social media sites. Mm -hmm. um, however, you can't always get these from the people who have them, so some people resort to stealing them, which involves some level of crime. It's at least presumed that the predominant sellers on there are ones that are stealing IDs from others and uh, trying to resell it on a market. So the, the story starts back in May where the forum operator said that one of his hard drives tanked and he's lost all this data and had to restore from a backup from January. And that's what he tells everybody. But apparently at the same time, this was actually the hack. So the site has been under attack. Mm. Somebody breaks in, dumps the database of users and passwords and conversations, which is all supposed to be like in a, you know, you have to have an account to get on the forum sort of mm -hmm. situation, uh, and then hoses his hard drive. And then mm. later on, a rival forum, Raid Forums, says, well, OG users got, you know, lost all their data, but I've got a backup, so here's everything. Mm. And you've got a list of 113,000 user accounts, along with the data associated with them, the passwords, which apparently were hashed with MD5, which most of us know is no longer a sufficient hash for protecting passwords. I mean, they're very easily cracked or looked up in the table of pre-cracked MD5 passwords. Mm. Any, any notion behind what, what is the motivation for this? Is this just vindictive or? It's a good question. Yeah. Uh, I think that these forums tend to have rivalries. Mm. Uh, Raid forums being a major rival of OG form, of OG users probably you know put OG users on the the list of targets. Um, I can't really say for, for any, I can't we really can say. only conjecture. I can yeah. only conjecture yeah. is the short version of it. But the upshot of this is that this list of users, of people who have potentially been committing crimes, mm -hmm. is now blowing in the wind. From a law enforcement perspective, that's a gold mine. That's a list of, of people's email addresses, their passwords, if you've got the authority to, to reuse those passwords anywhere else to gain more information, then, then do that as, as law enforcement. So is it, is it, I mean, you said there's certainly some criminal element here, but would all these folks be criminals? I, I, I suspect that, that that's there a hard would be question some to answer. Folks in there, just, you know, innocent until proven guilty kind of thing, right? Uh, that's a good point. Yes, that there are probably some people on the side who went there because they just wanted to try and buy a vanity mm -hmm. username. 
Um, I really can't say one way or the other. Yeah. I think the folks who run the forum probably have the best idea of how much of that activity is actually legitimate. Uh, the second group that would probably know better is also law enforcement. Uh, so I really can't say. Okay. But those people, again, their data is also in this breach. So there's some mm -hmm. level of collateral damage here where innocent people might also have their, mm -hmm. their you know, passwords stolen or, or their, their personal chat leaked, things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of innocent folks have become victims of you know, user account, password breaches, data mm -hmm. breaches, that sort of thing. We're all treated equal in the end. Yeah, it's true. Um, what do you think, Ami? I, I mean, I, I think this is going to keep happening, right? It's uh, it's a problem that we have been dealing with uh, for a long time. And, you know, as, as you described, if, if you're going to be registering an account in a, in a website that you can't trust like this one, just, you know, use a, a unique one. That is, you know, you're not reusing in any other uh, important websites. Otherwise, you know, you, you're going to end up having a, a hard time. Yeah, absolutely. It's really important to have different credentials on different websites. Make sure you use different passwords and different systems, no matter how mundane that access might seem. If you're using the same password in two places, if you lose it in one place, uh, it would potentially make you subject to uh, abuse in another place. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.